one of the things that I think is very important when you're establishing a doctrine, and I've said this probably dozens of times in the last months, especially to brethren overseas, is you cannot establish doctrine on a handful of mysterious statements. You have to use the weight of Scripture. When I say the weight of Scripture, I'm talking about the majority of Scripture, the bulk. If most of the Scripture describes a relationship between God and Christ, it seems to be a relationship between two different individuals. And a couple verses describe what appears to be one person, one individual, we'll call it that, because the word person has been completely redefined by later Christianity from a way the Bible didn't use it at all. There's no use in the Bible of the term person that means anything different than a being or entity. You cannot take a being or a person, not in the Bible, and divide them up into separate persons. Say, well, here's a being or an entity, but you can divide them up and there'll be three separate persons or two persons. You can't take two or three persons out of one being. There's nothing in the Bible that has ever allowed for that. That's later Greek philosophical thought that came up with that. If you only want to trace it, it started with the Gnostics. The Gnostics had the exact idea that came up later in Nicaea. And for a couple hundred years, they were being rebuked by the church fathers on how you do not want to have this type of a viewpoint. And it's exactly the viewpoint. In fact, the very word they used at the Council of Nicaea, they were debating this Greek word. Neither of these words is even in the Bible. But they were debating these Greek words, homoousius or homoian. One means of the same kind of substance. The other one means of the exact substance itself. And they were debating those back and forth about where Christ came from. Was he God himself or was he a similar being to God himself? That was really what they were trying to say. And they kept using this word homoousius. That's what they decided on. It's a word that says they're of the exact same substance. And their idea behind that was it's the same being. That that was the word the Gnostics used to describe Christ. They were rebuked for using it. And interestingly, they took that very word with the same meaning and used it at Nicaea. So church history, a study of that is valuable in some of this. I'm going to say this again, maybe get us started. You cannot take a small percentage of the scripture, a very, very small percentage of the scripture, that might seem to imply Jesus and God could be the same being. And by the way, the only way you're going to imply that is by reading some things into the text, because nowhere does it say that. There's not one scripture that says Jesus is the Almighty God. Let me be really specific, because we're going to talk about whether Jesus is God tonight, but you need to understand what I mean when I say Jesus is God. There's not one single scripture in the Bible that ever says Jesus is the Almighty God. There's not one single scripture in the entire Bible that ever says the title God the Son. There's not one single scripture in the entire Bible that ever used the title God the Holy Spirit. There is not a single scripture in the Bible that describes the Father being the Son simultaneously. Never in the Bible is the Father ever said to be also the Son. But that's what he has to be if you're going to believe that they're the same being. But there are some scriptures that have some very mysterious language in them that talks about Jesus having the fullness of God's divine nature, or Jesus doing things that only God is supposed to be able to do, or Jesus receiving worship that only God is supposed to be able to receive. And in order to explain that small handful of scriptures, you're either going to have to go to some type of a philosophical system to explain how that could make any sense, or you're just going to have to go to the bulk of scripture, the majority of scripture, and say, what does the rest of the Bible say? I just came across a scripture. I'm not talking about myself, by the way. I'm just saying someone that's studying this might say, I just came across a scripture that's mysterious to me. I don't understand it. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. It says that in the English, all right, but it doesn't say exactly that in the Greek. In the Greek, it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God, and the Word was a God. That is very different from saying the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
Do you think when they read that, they're going to translate it precisely as the Greek says it? No, they're reading translational bias into that. So I come across this scripture, and maybe I don't know enough of the Greek to realize why that scripture is a little bit different in its connotation than maybe I think what it says. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that must mean Jesus is God, because the next few verses start to tell us about how the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. So Jesus has to be the Almighty God, because it says right there, the Word was God. We talked about this in the past. Every time the title God is used, is, is it always used just for the Almighty God? What other individuals might be referred to with the title God that aren't the Almighty God, good or bad? What other entities, individuals, beings, are there in the Bible that are referred to with the title God? They may not always be referred to this way in the English, but that's what the Hebrew says or the Greek. What other individuals are referred to as God or gods in the Bible that aren't the Almighty God? Are there any? Scripture says there's God's many and the Lord's many. 1 Corinthians 8.5 says there's God's many and there's Lord's many. And 8.6 says, but to us, there's but one God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that that's all Paul would have to say to prove their doctrine? Why would he have not said that? If the Lord Jesus Christ is the one God, which is the Almighty God, all Paul had to do when he got to that statement and was writing to the church at Corinth in that 8th chapter, the 6th verse, all he had to say is, but to us there is but one God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible never says that. That was a perfect opportunity for Paul to correct the type of viewpoint we have if our viewpoint is wrong. He could have just said, but to us there's one God. He wouldn't have even had to add any other words, just the Lord Jesus Christ. Or he could have said, the one that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He could have said, that revealed himself as the Lord Jesus Christ. There's all kinds of phrases he could have used. But instead of that, he added a conjunction in there and said, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things that we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ. So when he says there's God's many and Lord's many, he's about to tell you about two of them in the next verse. Tell me again, what different entities, animate or inanimate, are there in the Bible that might bear the title God or gods? All the idols. All the idols, the false gods. Now, our assumption is they're inanimate, unless there's some evil spirit behind them. They're inanimate, meaning they're not alive. A stone is not a real god of any kind. Sister Helen? 2 Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Sister Helen said, where it says the God of this world has blinded them. There's another God. Now, those are all gods that are not good, though. Whether we're talking about idols, whether we're talking about the God of this world, those are gods that are not good. So someone might just say to you, well, there's no good God but God. Those are all false gods. They're just getting that title because they're false. They're evil. They're not a true and good God like our God. Are there any beings or entities in the Bible that are called God or gods, especially in the original languages, that God himself favors and possibly even gave that position or title to? Moses. Moses was called this in Exodus 4 and Exodus 7 both. Moses was referred to that way. He said, you'll be a God to Aaron. That's in Exodus 4, isn't it? He said, you'll be a God to Aaron, and Aaron will be your prophet. You'll be as God, essentially the same thing. It's the same word, Elohim. And then in Exodus 7 is when he was talking about him being a god to Pharaoh. He said, I've made you a god to Pharaoh. So Aaron was carrying out the role of a prophet, and Moses was the one that's behind the prophet, giving the prophet direction. That's what God does. He's behind the prophets, giving them direction. So Moses is an example. Sister Heather brought up. I think it was Sister Heather back there. What else might be a god that's in the Bible that God either put into that position or that he seems to have favored? in the position of what the Hebrew word, especially the Hebrew word Elohim, 
or El, which is a word for a god in the Old Testament in the Hebrew. Judges. The judges. The judges are referred to that way. And the leaders of Israel were referred to that way in the 82nd Psalm. We talked about this not long ago, but Jesus proved that without a shadow of a doubt. Because in John 10, he was talking right there to human beings. He wasn't talking to angels. He was talking to human beings and he said, God said, ye are gods. Do you realize out of the mouth of Jesus himself, he proved in that one sentence that someone could be called a God who is not the almighty God. You don't even need another verse. Jesus' quotation of Psalms 82 is absolute evidence that a being who is not the almighty God can be referred to as a God. In the 8th Psalm, the angels are referred to as Elohim. It doesn't translate it that way in the King James. It just says angels. But that's actually the word Elohim. And when Paul refers to it in Hebrews, he quotes that as referring to the angels in the second chapter of Hebrews. So there's no mystery at all about that. It's not talking about God. Paul made it clear it's talking about angels. It's probably why the King James translators translated it angels, but that's a little misleading because it actually says God's there in the eighth psalm. Made him a little lower than the angels. You could have said made him a little lower than the gods, but that would have really thrown some people's thinking off. But the angels are celestial beings who are beings of power. They are godlike compared to us, wouldn't you think? And that's really what it's about, because somebody has great power even on this earth can have power that is almost godlike compared to other human beings. They might be a human being, but they've got the power of life and death over somebody. That is godlike power. That doesn't make them a god like the Almighty God, but it's important to understand that God is not the only person referred to as a god in the Bible. Those are just a handful of examples. If I can think of some more that would be good to add, I'll maybe add them as we go through, but Jesus is certainly one of these individuals referred to as a god. Would the fact that Jesus is referred to as a god prove that he must be the Almighty God? We just demonstrated there's a number of people who were referred to as gods, both in a positive and in a negative connotation. Negative, if it's a false god or the god of this world. Positive, if it's somebody that God gave that position to, like Moses or like the judges or like those angelic beings or even like the rulers of Israel, which could be referring to the judges or the princes there in Psalms 82. So you cannot make the case that because an entity is referred to as a god, they automatically have to be the Almighty God. That is completely ruled out by the way the Bible uses that terminology. So now let's look at a few of the examples of where Jesus is referred to as a God, because what I want to talk about tonight is the fact that there are two powers in heaven. There's two divine beings in heaven. God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. There's two divine beings in heaven. They're not equal. They've never been equal. If you wanted to say they're co-eternal, the only way you could say they're co-eternal is in the sense that they both existed in eternity past, but that doesn't mean they both always existed throughout all eternity. Because at some point, Jesus came into being. God has never had a beginning as far as we understand it. Jesus is referred to with this type of terminology, and since he's referred to with this type of terminology, we only have two things we can assume. Either he's being referred to like other beings in the Bible are, as a great powerful ruler, or a great powerful agent of God in some way, like an angel would be, like one of the judges or princes of Israel, or he is being referred to as the Almighty God. Psalms 45, 6-7 says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is what's quoted in Hebrews 2. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. That's what's quoted in Hebrews 1, 8 to 9. It says it almost the same exact way. Unto the Son he saith. That tells you right now who it is, doesn't it? 
If you weren't certain who Psalms 45 was referring to, Hebrews 1.8 tells you, Unto the Son he saith, he there is God. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. By the way, who would be saying this to the Son? The Father. Who else could make his throne forever and ever? Only God. And this does not say, Unto himself he saith. It says to the Son he saith. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness, hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with oil of joy, or gladness in this case, above thy fellows. That's a direct quote of Psalms 45. The fact that he's referred to as God in that passage, would that automatically demonstrate that he has to be the Almighty God? No. For the very reasons we just talked about a few moments ago. There's other people referred to exactly the same way. So that by itself doesn't make him the Almighty God. And by the way, the context of that statement makes it even less likely he's the Almighty God because somebody is calling him God who is obviously more powerful than he is or is the one in the scriptures preceding this that's the one giving him his inheritance, giving him his position, giving him his name. The context alone tells you this isn't the Almighty God. This God has a God. He has been anointed by that God above his fellows. We talked about that the last few weeks, I know. So a few of these verses, this is going to happen when we go through a subject like this. There's a finite number of statements about these subjects. And our verses we talk about will be overlapping. Commonly quoted as a proof that Jesus is the Almighty God. When it says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. I told you when we talked about that verse in detail, some people take that series of titles as one long name, like the name Maher Shalal Hashbaz in the chapter before this, in the first three verses of Isaiah 8. Some others break it up into specific titles and say he is this, he is this. It may just be one long name intended to refer to him with these qualities without telling you that he's specifically, individually, each one of these things. But considering how Elohim is used elsewhere, this isn't even Elohim, you know. This is the word El. This is El Gibor when it says mighty God. Considering the fact that Elohim is used for the judges of Israel, it's used for human rulers, it's used for angels, this isn't even Elohim. This is El, which is a much more general term for God. The Hebrew word El is a title that is used for almost anything that we call a God. False gods, anything else. Elohim is usually something that is referring to the Almighty God. But as I said, it also refers to humans and angels as well. But this isn't even the word Elohim. This is the shortened version El, which is far more general as a statement about a being of power. So that's not proof that makes Jesus the Almighty God. Even if it was intended as a title of divinity, it still doesn't prove Jesus is the Almighty God. He could have been given that divinity by the Almighty God, which is what Hebrews looks like it's describing. In John 1.1, I quoted just a few minutes ago, in the beginning was the Word, the Word is with God, the Word was God. There is another example of Jesus being referred to that way. Now, there's a lot of discussion on what that's actually saying. Is that saying that the Word was God's plan that he had, and his plan was divine? And until he spoke that plan into a person, it was part of who he was. It was his mind, his thoughts. But out of his thoughts, he formed a son. I wouldn't have a problem with that view. That completely explains that you realize, because if it's not talking about a person initially, if it starts off as God's purpose in his mind, and he speaks that purpose into a person, then later the word that was the word in his mind is the word that is the word that's in a person. The word that was his purpose is now the word in person. 
you follow what I'm saying. I don't have a problem with that particular interpretation. I don't think it's completely necessary, though, because of what the Greek actually says here. We do believe that Jesus pre-existed, that he was the agent God used to create the heavens and the earth. So I wouldn't have a problem with saying that he was a divine being that was there with God. I wouldn't have a problem with that at all. But in order to say that, you need to understand what the Greek really says. It doesn't say the word was the God. It says the word was with the God and the word was God. And when you say God without the definite article, it's assumed that the letter A is what you're using, an indefinite article. There's a vast difference between the word the and a. A means it could be one of many. The means it is one very specifically. So understanding the Greek, that can be an answer to what this means in John 1.1. Even if it could be argued that that is intended to refer to something that was fully divine, that was part of God, you could argue that Jesus began as a purpose in the mind of God, God's word. He had a thought, a design, a purpose. And he took that thought, that design, that purpose that was in his mind, that was part of, you know, when something's in your mind, it's you, it's your thoughts. And he spoke it or formed it into a son. And it became the purpose of God that was in his divine mind became a person. Either way, I wouldn't have a problem with either of those interpretations. But that's another example of an assumption of Jesus being referred to as God. Still does not make him the almighty God for both of the reasons I just gave you. John 20, 28. When Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God, even those who are Trinitarian or oneness debate John's exact meaning by this statement, by the way. Thomas might have been expressing praise the Almighty God. You know, he sees Jesus and realizes Jesus is alive, and he might just be raising his hands up to heaven and crying out to God, praising the Lord for the power of the resurrection that raised up Jesus. He could be dividing these statements up. And we're going to see that the Bible does do this. It divides up a distinction between the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. He may just be saying, my Lord, looking at Jesus. And then his next statement is aimed at Jesus' Father and my God. He might be talking to both of them one after another in the statement. Or he may be expressing praise to Christ as God. But if that were proven to be true, which it is not certain at all by the context... Even if that were proven to be true, is he expressing praise to Jesus as the Almighty God or as a divine being? So the fact that Jesus might be referred to as God or a God does not mean he's the Almighty God for several reasons. I'll just give you two simple reasons for it. Number one, both of these I've told you already, the Hebrew and Greek terms that are translated God or gods in the Bible are not just used for the Almighty God. They're used for human beings and angels as well. And we gave some of those examples in Exodus 4 and Exodus 7. And Sister Heather referred to the judges of Israel. An example that's in Exodus 22, 8, when it's referring to going before the judges. That actual word is going before the gods, which is a pretty strong statement to make, but it's referring to them as beings in a position where they have godlike power. They're the ones who are going to make the final decision. They have the final authority. And realistically, if they're doing it right, if they're standing there as God's representatives, they are doing that as agents of God. And then Psalm 8 I referred to, where the angels are referred to as Elohim. Of course, in the King James, it's translated angels, but that's actually the word Elohim. And I told you Paul referred to that in Hebrews 2, from the 6th to 9th verse is the context of that, where he refers back to Psalms 8, and he refers to those beings as angels. Psalms 82 we talked about, where the rulers of Israel are referred to with the Hebrew word Elohim. Some believe that the beginning of that passage is talking about angels, and the latter part is talking about human agents. I'm not going to take a side in that. 
But without a shadow of a doubt, the end of it is definitely talking about human beings because that's how Jesus used it in John 10, the 34th through the 36th verses of John 10 that Jesus makes it very clear that that is talking about the Israelites. Second reason that you might have why you cannot just make the statement that Jesus is called God, so he must be the Almighty God. First is the way the word God is used in the Bible. It's obviously used for far more than just God himself. It's used for other agents of God. Divinely authorized and empowered agents is how I've been wording it. And if God's divinely authorized somebody to act on his behalf and divinely empowered them to act on his behalf, there are times when they're referred to with that terminology. Certainly you think Jesus fits that role, don't you? And that's precisely the role someone would have to fit, even if they weren't the Almighty God, to have that title. The other reason is hidden inside the language of a number of scriptures in the Bible, more than you might think. We usually just quote a couple, one in John and one here in Hebrews 1, where Jesus is referred to as having a God. That's the second evidence. You cannot argue that Jesus is the Almighty God based on the fact that he's called a God because he himself is described as having a God. And the Almighty God certainly has no God. Amen? Amen. We know the Almighty God doesn't have a God. I'll give you a number of scriptures that refer to how Jesus has a God. I'm just going to give you maybe one or two from the Old Testament. The rest of them will be from the New Testament. The Old Testament scriptures, of course, are going to be prophetic because Jesus wasn't revealed yet. But the one scripture in particular I'm going to give you in Micah 5 is one that all Christians agree, believe, is referring to Jesus. There's no doubt there. The ones in the New Testament, what I think you'll find interesting about them is that most of the time that Jesus is referred to as having a God, it's after his resurrection that those statements are made. Why would that be significant to us? There's an argument that Jesus was only subjective to God while here on earth before his death and resurrection. Yes, which, by the way, is almost nonsensical. For someone that's a oneness believer, that makes no sense whatsoever because Jesus is fully God. Essentially, their belief is just that the sun is just one side of a multi-sided God. You're just seeing the sun. It's the same being and person as the Father, though. Whereas the Trinitarian approach is that there's one being who is God, but he's made up of three persons. Well, here's the problem with either one of those two views in these statements. Usually, any of the statements Jesus makes in the Gospels where he says, My Father is greater than I, or he says, I don't know the day of my coming, God alone knows that. Those statements are just brushed over with this argument that Brother Kosa just brought up that that's just because he was in his humanity. In his humanity, he didn't know these things, but his deity knew them. Now, here's where common sense has to be thrown out the door in order for you to continue believing this. You either have to ignore just rational thinking or you have to ignore a great bulk of the scripture and common sense just has to be ejected from the conversation. Do you really believe that here is one being and inside of him is a divine nature and a human nature and they're divided by this impenetrable wall? For lack of a better word, this is really what you'd have to believe he's doing while he's pretending to be human and pretending not to be divine. He pretends not to know the things that he would know when he's divine. Either that or you're arguing that he has a split personality. Part of him is human and part of him is divine and the part that is human never has any bleed over into the part that's divine or vice versa. Here's the problem with that when you start getting down to some of the events in his life that are critical. You realize this is a nature we're talking about. I doubt anybody that has a different view than ours on the Godhead would say there was a human being that was God at the same time there was a celestial being that was God. No, they just mean there's one being that's God and he had two different natures. He had a human nature and a divine nature both within him. That's usually an excuse, by the way, that's used when you ask somebody, which seems like an open and shut type of a statement, but this is how they squeeze out of this statement. 
Did God die on the cross? Did he fully die? Was God fully dead? No, God wasn't fully dead. Only his humanity died. His divine nature lived. First of all, you're talking about this metaphysical thing when you're talking about someone's nature. Did his body die on the cross or not? Because his body isn't his nature. Did he die or not? See, you have to get into some very strange convolutions to get around the fact that he died on the cross. If he was fully God in that body, and if he fully died, then God died and the universe would be coming to an end. The only way you can argue that that occurred is by arguing that somehow he was split into two different persons, and the oneness brothers can't even argue that. They wouldn't even make that case, that his divine nature and his human nature were operating independently. And his human nature died, but his divine nature did not. I can give you a lot of very deep reasons why that is nonsensical, but I shouldn't take any explanation to see how nonsensical that is. One of the main arguments that is used is that Jesus had to be fully God for his death on the cross to have forgiven all the sins of mankind. Let's use some ABC logic. If only the death of God himself could atone for the sins of mankind, then how could you possibly argue if God himself was still alive somewhere and it was just his human nature that died, that God died for the sins of mankind? And then what part of God would be the important part that would have to die for the sins of mankind? What power would there be in his humanity? If that was just humanity and the real divinity of God was still existing somewhere, you're arguing then if you're saying it's required that God himself has to die for your sins or else no sin can be forgiven, which again goes completely cross-grained to scripture because people got their sins forgiven with animals dying. And as I said, the goat on the day of atonement toned for the sins of the entire nation for the entire year. But if the argument is made God himself had to die or else sin couldn't be forgiven, how would you possibly argue that the humanity of God was sufficient for that death? If your argument is only the divine being himself dying could pay for our sins, you don't even believe the divine being himself did die. You're arguing that some human vessel with human nature died, but the divine being was still alive somewhere. So you can't even use the argument that it's necessary for God himself to die for our sins because you can't make that case if you believe his divine nature never died and his human nature did. All you can say is a human nature died for our sins. Do you see the logic in that? If you're going to argue that only the divine God's death could bring forgiveness for sin and yet tell us that the divine God didn't really die, only his human nature did, Are you arguing then that a human nature is sufficient to die for sin? See, it it makes no sense when you start thinking about it. Let me give you some of these scriptures that refer to Jesus having a God. I want you to think about how simple these statements are. Micah 5, 2-4, which is a prophecy about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And as I said, no traditional Christian from any background would argue this is talking about anyone but Jesus. It's essentially universally accepted this is Jesus. Thou Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me he that is to be ruler in Israel. Now just think about the language. Out of there is going to come forth unto him. Again, you're talking about two entities. How do you not have two entities? If somebody's coming out of Bethlehem, it's going to come unto God. Whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. This is still talking about Jesus, that we've had no break. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord. That's what he does as the great shepherd. In the majesty, listen to this phrase, of the name of the Lord, his God. 
Whoever this is has a God, right? Nobody would argue that this is Jesus. This is an Old Testament example of talking about how Jesus has a God. Matthew 27, 46, when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, saying in Aramaic, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's pretty strong evidence he has a God, wouldn't you think? Did those words have meaning or were they just meaningless? Was he just quoting poetry as he was hanging on the cross or did the statement he was making have some meaning? I completely believe that that statement had meaning and significance. I believe Jesus was experiencing something. It wasn't an empty quote of a scripture. He was experiencing something. Who was he talking to? Are you really going to make the case that his human nature was crying out to his divine nature as if they're two different beings? If you're going to make that case, you have to make them two different beings. You can't talk to yourself like that. How could you say to yourself, why are you forsaking me? And not only that, my God, a possessive, meaning whoever he's talking to is the one that he sees as his God. God has no God. In John twenty seventeen, when Jesus said unto Mary Magdalene, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Another proof that Jesus has a God. 1 Corinthians three twenty three, You are Christ's and Christ is God's. He belongs to God. I'll give you a couple like this that don't say that God is his God, but they infer that. This is one of them. It says, you are Christ and Christ is God's. And by the way, the fact that it says you are Christ does not make you Christ, does it? The fact that it says ye are Christ's, possessive, does not mean you are Christ, does it? Why would you read the last half of the verse that says Christ is God's to mean Christ is God? That's not what it says. And if Christ is God's, belongs to God, in the way that we are Christ's, that we belong to Christ, that's a pretty clear pecking order, wouldn't you say? Because we are not Christ and we're not on his level. And Jesus is not on God's level in the sense of the Almighty God. Just eight chapters later in 1 Corinthians, it proves that unequivocally when it says, I would have you to know the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. Pretty clear, isn't it? Four chapters later, in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, it says, When all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him to put all things under him, that God may be all in all. It tells you right there that God put everything under Jesus, and Jesus is subject to God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. This is an example of translational bias in this scripture, in the King James. The phrase when it says, blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, what the Greek actually says there, and you'll see this in the NASB or ESV or a number of other translations, it actually says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So though the King James says, blessed be God, even the Father, what it actually says in the Greek is, blessed be the God and Father. Tells you he's not just Jesus' Father, he's his God too. Ephesians 1.17 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of him. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Jesus Christ has a God. Hebrews 1.9. This is quoting back to Psalms 45, back to the seventh verse of that chapter. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. What we quoted earlier. Notice, he says that he's got a God. God. Even thy God. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelations 3.2. This is another example of one that the translation contains some bias. 
says, Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. This is Jesus talking. What it actually says in the Greek, I have not found thy works perfect before my God. Another possessive that reveals the fact that he has a God himself. But that isn't the only one in Revelation. There's at least one more in Revelation. It's very clear. He says it multiple times in one verse. The message of the overcomers in Revelation 3.12, he says it four times in one verse. To him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God. If Jesus wasn't trying to confuse people and he really was God, all he had to say is, I'll make him a pillar in my temple. Why would you say the temple of my God? He shall go no more out, and I will write upon him the name of my God. All he had to say was, I'll write upon him my name. He does say that in other places, but that's not what he says here. In the name of the city of my God. If Jesus was God, all he would have to say there is, and the name of my city. But instead, it's the city of my God, which is the new Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. God. Four times in one verse, he refers to the fact that he himself has a God. And then he says, and I will write upon him my new name. Imagine you already know the problems here. Not only is it four times as he referred to the fact that he has a God, when all he had to do if he was that God is simply just say, it's my city, it's my name. But now you're going to run into a real problem trying to say that's what he's saying. Because in the beginning, he says, I'll write upon him the name of my God. And the last thing he's going to write on you is his new name. Didn't he already say that? He's God, right? He said, I'm going to write upon him the name of my God. Why would you repeat at the end, I'll write upon him my new name? Think about the evidences that are in there. Just in that one single verse, four different times, Jesus refers to God as his God. Then on top of that, he talks about writing the name of his God on the overcomers and also his own name. Talking about two different names, aren't we? There's some of the proofs regarding how Jesus is referred to as God and what that could mean. You can see he's only referred to as God a handful of times. And in almost every one of those times, if you look at the context, there's a reason why he's being referred to with those titles. Never once does it call him the Almighty God, does it? Never once does it say Jesus is the Lord God either. Never once. And when we take into consideration the way the terminology God is used in the Bible, like I said, and we've talked about in detail in another class that we had, and you take into consideration, there's just as many or more times Jesus refers to the fact that he has a God as there is times that Jesus is referred to as a God. In fact, if you want to really be strict with your numbering, there are more times that Jesus is referred to as having a God. Trying to argue that using the title God for Jesus automatically makes him the Almighty God has been disproven very simply by just those two points. Many times the word God is used for beings that are not God. God himself cannot possibly have a God. And Jesus is described as a God who has a God. The other title that's often confused between God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son is the title Lord. I had somebody bring up to me here just this last week. One of the brethren from overseas brought up to me the fact that Jesus is called Lord and that means he has to be the Lord God of heaven. Do you believe every time the title Lord is used in the Bible it's referring to the Lord God? You understand the title Lord is an even more general title than the title God. It is a title like King. Every time the title King is used in the Bible, it's not referring to God. Certainly God is referred to as a King. Psalms 95.3, God's referred to as a King. It says the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. Well, does that mean every single time someone's called a King? That has to be God. God's the great King above all gods. So if somebody's called a King, they must be God. 
You see how ridiculous that kind of reasoning is? If somebody's called the Lord, they must be the Lord God. Anybody that's called the Lord, Jesus called the Lord Jesus Christ. Must be God then. Well, David is called King David too. And God is called a king. That doesn't make King David the king of saints. Another example of God being called a king is in Jeremiah 10.10 when it says the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. Now let me ask you again, does that mean every time the title king is used that it must be referring to God? Anybody called a king must be God. Why would you come to the assumption anybody called Lord must be God? Because you have a predisposition towards the idea that Jesus is God. By the way, why would there even be a title like the Lord God in the Bible at all if the Lord always meant God? You would never need to say the Lord God, would you? You see, the Lord God qualifies the title God. It tells you this isn't just any God, and it's not just any Lord. This is the Lord God. There's a number of places in the Bible that terminology is used. Exodus 34, 23, when he says, Thrice in a year shall all your men children appear before the Lord God. Why say the Lord God if the Lord is automatically God? You wouldn't need to qualify it like that, would you? Deuteronomy 10.17. Now, sometimes when you see the word Lord, as you well know, in the Old Testament, it is not the word Adonai underneath that. It's God's personal name. So you do need to realize that. That's an example where it says the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. By the way, when it says the Lord your God, the first Lord there is all capital letters. So Yahweh or Jehovah your God is God of gods. And then it says he's Lord of lords. That's not his personal name. That's the title Adonai. I'm not going to get any depth in this. There are several Hebrew words that are translated Lord or Master in the Bible. Adonai is almost always used of God himself. That's A-D-O-N-A-I. Adoni is A-D-O-N-I is usually used for men that are lords. And Adon, where they both come from, that's the root word. A-D-O-N means Master or Lord. There's times the word Master or Lord is used certainly for people other than God himself. I'm just going to very quickly give you some examples of some people in the Bible that are referred to as Lord or my Lord. You can come up with a lot of these. This is not an unusual thing for a human being to be referred to as Lord. Sometimes not even in a position of great authority over a kingdom. Sarah called Abraham Lord. Genesis 18:12. And she didn't even do it in a context that was respectful. She might have meant it respectfully towards Abraham, but she was almost being disrespectful about God's promise when she said that phrase says, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I am waxed old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? She's talking about Abraham. Genesis 23, 6. The children of Heth, when they come to Abraham, refer to him as Lord. Genesis 42, 10. Joseph is referred to as Lord by his brothers, for they recognize who he is. They refer to him as Lord. It's a respectful title for someone in a position of authority. It doesn't make the person God himself. Numbers 36, the chief fathers of the families of the children of Gilead came and spake before Moses. I'm not going to read the whole context, but they spake before Moses. And they said, listen to this. This has got several different lords in this passage. They said, the Lord, that's capital L-O-R-D, that's God's personal name, commanded my Lord to give the land for an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord... That's talking about Moses. Was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of Zelophehad, our brother, unto his daughters. You realize the chief fathers basically were saying the Lord God commanded the Lord Moses. They referred to Moses as the Lord there. 
to give out this inheritance. Now, this is a perfect example of the law of agency because God said he was going to give Israel their inheritance, didn't he? Didn't he promise that multiple times? I'll give you this. But who was the one actually giving it to them? Moses and Joshua, for that matter. They were the authorities God was using. And guess how they were referred to? As a Lord. But they weren't the Lord God. Joshua 5, when Joshua falls down before the captain of the Lord's host, for the angel, he refers to him as Lord. Says it came to pass, this is in the 13th to the 15th verse, when Joshua was by Jericho, they lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. I believe that was Jesus, by the way. I don't think that was just any angelic being. I think it was Jesus. Joshua didn't know it was Jesus. He didn't understand who that was, but he knew it was an angel. And he knew that angel was the representative of God. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship. By the way, he was worshiping right in front of an angel because God himself wasn't standing there. And said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? Now, you might argue he was saying, What saith the Lord? But I think he was talking to the angel when he said that. Translators were honest enough to make it a lowercase l, so they must not have thought it was God that he was speaking to. But he knew that that was God's agent. What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, see, he's the one that replies, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thy standest is holy. Judges 6 is another example of that, when the angel of the Lord appears unto Gideon. Listen to how Gideon responds when it says, Angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee. That's capital L-O-R-D. Thou mighty man of valor, Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, why has all this befallen us? He's talking to the angel and referring to him as Lord, isn't he? My Lord, if the Lord, and you can see throughout there that kind of language is used. First Kings one seventeen. this is Bathsheba talking to David, and she says to David, My Lord, thou swearest by the Lord thy God unto thy handmaid, saying, Assuredly, Solomon thy son shall reign after me, and he shall sit upon my throne. She was appealing to him for her son Solomon to be king because David had made that promise. But she refers to David as my Lord, doesn't she? Did it make David God? This is just common sense. First Kings 18, Obadiah refers to both Elijah and Elijah refers to Ahab with the title Lord. Obadiah, when he met Elijah, fell on his face. Isn't that interesting? Fell on his face before Elijah. Oh, wait a second now. Nobody can prostrate themselves before anyone except the Almighty God. You're misunderstanding what God means. Nobody can be worshipped as the Almighty God except the Almighty God. People will fall down on their face before authorities throughout the Bible. But they're not worshipping them as the Almighty God. And the fact of the matter is, when Obadiah fell down before Elijah, he wasn't worshiping Elijah as the Almighty God. He was showing deference and respect to Elijah, and I think by extension, he was saying, I know who's behind you. I know the Almighty God is the authority behind you. So he fell down. He says to him, Art thou that my Lord Elijah? My Lord Elijah. And when Elijah answers him, he says, I am. Go tell thy Lord. Talking about Ahab. Behold, Elijah is here. 2 Kings 2.19, Elisha is referred to as Lord. And then Psalms 1.10, and this is one we'll probably come back to a couple times. First verse says, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. By the way, when it says my Lord, the second one there, it's not Adonai, it's Adoni, the form of the word for Lord or Master that is almost always used of human beings, not of God himself. 
Jesus himself refers to this scripture as referring to him. In Matthew twenty-two forty-one to 46, he refers to this as a reference to himself as the son of David and how unusual it is that David is talking in the terms he is here. And by the way, as I said here a minute ago, the fact that the word Adoni is used here when it says my Lord instead of Adonai is a very strong evidence the Messiah is not God himself. Because if the Messiah was God himself, they would have used the word Adonai, which is the word that's used for God when it's referring to God as the Lord. But instead it used the other form of this word. I'm not going to go through a list of scriptures on this, but another thing you might consider is the many examples in the Gospels especially of people calling Jesus Lord who couldn't have possibly thought they were talking to the Lord God of heaven. Some of them are people that hardly even knew who Jesus was. They just knew he was this great prophet that was going through the land healing people. Several times when individuals that were blind appealed to him, they called him my Lord, son of David. They weren't thinking of him as the Lord God when they did that. They would have never had that conception in their mind that he was the Lord God. They were referring to him with a title of respect and deference because their assumption was this may be the Messiah. This may be the one who's going to be our king. They weren't thinking of him as God. And you can go through the Gospels and find example after example of Jesus being referred to as Lord. And it's funny because when certain views of the Godhead approach these passages, they say, see, there's the proof. Jesus is called Lord in the New Testament. That's the proof. He is the Lord God. He's being called Lord many times in the New Testament. People didn't know who he was. The only conception they had of who he was is he might be a great prophet. Remember, Elijah and Elisha both were referred to as Lord. That's why I wanted you to get those two. I could have given you a lot more examples of the Old Testament. But I wanted to give you examples of David being referred to as Lord. Elijah being referred to as Lord. Elisha being referred to as Lord. A great prophet or a king is referred to with that language. And they thought he was both. Remember the blind man, he said, My Lord, thou son of David, have mercy on me. Do you realize that when he was referring to him as the son of David, it was the kingly line and the messianic role that he believed Jesus was filling. Not that he thought Jesus was the almighty God. I'll give you a few scriptures that show you the distinction between the lordship of God and the lordship of Christ. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Ten verses later in the 11th verse says, not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not God, the Lord Jesus Christ. God through. Romans 6.11 says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 says, The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 7.25 says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, these are making a distinction between God and Jesus Christ the Lord. Romans 8.39 talks about not height or depth or any other creature that shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 15.6 says that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a strong distinction, isn't there? 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the one we've been quoting a lot in this study, 1 Corinthians 8.6, to us there is but one God the Father, of whom are all things and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we by him. 1 Corinthians 15.57, thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.3 says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
tells you pretty distinctly who they are, doesn't it? God is the Father. And then there's the Lord Jesus Christ. There is not one single example where it combines those two together in a phrase that says, Blessed be the Lord God the Father, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Or, Blessed be the Lord God the Father, Jesus Christ. Listen, if that's what it meant to say, wouldn't you think you'd find at least one time it actually says that? It says exactly the opposite. Throughout the scripture, it makes a distinction between them. 2 Corinthians 11.31 The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 117 says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Ephesians 3.14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's pretty strong distinctions in these statements. You have to entirely change the meaning of the grammar and rules of common sense and grammar to make this mean something other than two different individuals. Ephesians 6.23 says, Peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no reason to put that conjunction in there if God the Father is the Lord Jesus Christ. You would just say, peace be to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, or God the Father, Jesus Christ. Never is it ever worded anything like that. Philippians 2.11 says that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 1 Thessalonians 3.11 says, Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you. 2 Thessalonians 1.2, That the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There would have been an easy one. Just leave the word and out. Our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. No, our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2.16 now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. 1 Timothy 5.21 says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. All right, let's think about that phrase. He's charging him before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the elect angels. If you're going to blend God and Jesus Christ in there into one being, you better blend the angels in too. If you're going to be consistent in your interpretation, maybe God's all the angels and all the angels are God. You see, it says right there, God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. Those conjunctions mean you got three different beings here. You got God, you got Jesus, you have the angels. 2 Timothy 4.1 I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Hebrews 13.20, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, not himself. 1 Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty straight. The one I go to first, though, is the very last one I'm going to give you in this particular list. Jude, the fourth verse. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, listen to this, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. There's an example where it calls both of them Lord with the conjunction and. Our only Lord God. Now I want you to think about what this is saying. 
and the Lord Jesus Christ, which means the Lord Jesus Christ is not the only Lord God. There's only one Lord God. Our only Lord God. In other words, we haven't given up the only Lord God and replaced him with Jesus. We still believe in the only Lord God. We have the only Lord God and we have our Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, that statement said that they deny the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Technically, that would make them antichrist if they don't accept Christ. And I'm going to tell you, it's heartbreaking to have to say it this strong. But anybody that does not see the difference between God and Christ is doing exactly that. They would be in the company of these individuals because they're denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes people don't know they're doing it because they have been trained and taught and educated into it. But somebody that's been given all the evidence, there's an example of the statement, too much is given, much is required. Once you've been given the evidence, you can't continue believing a lie if you know it's a lie and not be damned. I'm going to tell you right now, once the light has been turned on, the lie that you believe, if you continue believing it, you can be certain you're going to face damnation. That's why we want to turn the light on some of these things. Give a person an opportunity, not so that they're locked into a state of judgment, but so they can be released from a state of judgment. There's a lot of people in this world right now that are denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They're denying that. They're denying it by combining them into one person, or they're denying it by not making the right distinction between them and their doctrine in some other way. I mentioned earlier, almost every introductory greeting that's part of most of the New Testament books include God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, mentioned distinctly and separately. And by the way, I want you to notice what's missing in almost every single one of these. A third entity. There is no greeting from the Holy Spirit. By the way, there's only once or twice ever in any books where it's part of the introductory element that it includes the Spirit in that, and it doesn't include it as sending a greeting or a blessing. So I'm going to briefly give you these because these go right along with the list I just gave you. Romans 1.7, To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice it's from two different individuals. Jesus was back in heaven with the Father at this time, wasn't he? Why would there need to be a distinction made between the two of them if they were back in heaven together and they're the same being? Wouldn't you just say, grace to you and peace from God our Father, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, or not even say Jesus or God in it, just say grace and peace be unto you from God? But it makes a distinction, doesn't it? I'm not going to repeat this every time, but I want you to notice this. It does not say grace and peace be unto you from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1.3, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Two individuals and not three. 2 Corinthians 1.2, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, two and not three and not one. Galatians 1.3, grace be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive the redundancy. Two different beings, not three, not one. Ephesians 1, 2, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 1, 2, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1, 2, I'm just going to go through the order of every one of these New Testament books, if they have an introduction at all. Colossians 1, 2 says, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1, Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. This says it twice pretty strong. Notice who it's in. 
It doesn't say in God the Father, in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't say in God. It says in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 2. Grace unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how every time that Paul's writing this, it's always from those two, and it's never from three, and it's never from one. 1 Timothy 1, 2. Unto Timothy, my own son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. 2 Timothy 1, 2. To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Titus 1.4, to Titus, my own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Philemon 3 says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Same kind of pattern you see. When you get to the book of Hebrews, you notice that it doesn't have this kind of introductory greeting. It's one of the reasons why some people argue that Paul didn't write Hebrews. They say that there's some things missing that would probably be there if Paul had written it. He uses certain language. But there's also language in Hebrews that Paul uses in other places in his letters, and I personally believe Paul wrote Hebrews. But in the first part of Hebrews, though it doesn't give you an introductory greeting, it does mention two different individuals, and it doesn't mention three. It says God, there's the first, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That is pretty clear. There's only two people described there, isn't there? Not one and not three. James 1.1 says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's that conjunction again. Not a servant of God who is the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant of both. And no mention of the Holy Spirit that he's a servant to. 1 Peter 1, 1 1-5, Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit. Here's one of the only examples where the Spirit's included in the greeting. But notice that it's God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. But notice when he actually uses the greeting, how he words it. It's very similar to how Paul's greeting is. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation be revealed in the last time. So there's that little snippet where you might include the Spirit in it. But when he really gets to the statements, you notice he says God and Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 1, 2. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Notice there that there's no mention of a third person and there is a clear mention of two different individuals. 1 John 1, 1 1-4, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life. Now, many believe the word of life there is not just referring to the Bible, it's referring to Jesus himself. For the life was manifested. It was manifested in Jesus. 
That's the same kind of language he used in the first chapter of his gospel. And we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us. Notice who we have fellowship with. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Pretty clear, isn't it? doesn't say our fellowship is with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's no statement in the Bible that says that. If that was such a powerful, central doctrine of Christianity, they certainly seem to miss it. It says our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus. John 3, grace be with you, mercy, peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and love. Third John, there's no introductory greeting. Jude 1 to 2 says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Again, there's two, not three, not one. Finally, Revelation. This is one of the only other examples where the Spirit's mentioned at all in these introductory greetings. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him. There's two right there, isn't there? Wouldn't that be nonsensical to say the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to himself? It doesn't say that. It says he gave it unto Jesus. To show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bare record of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, and of all the things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things that are written therein. For the time is at hand. I'm reading all this because this is all part of the introduction. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you in peace. Notice that John, Peter, Paul, and James use a similar type of formula in their introduction. From him which is and which was and which is to come. As I said, this is the only example you might actually say the Spirit might be included. From the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Well, you certainly couldn't get oneness doctrine out of that. Someone might argue you can get a Trinitarian doctrine because it's mentioning the spirits, but it doesn't say the spirit, you realize. It talks about the seven spirits. You know the seven spirits, the seven spirits of God. Though both God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son are referred to as the title Lord in the Bible, there's not one example in the entire Bible of the Holy Spirit being referred to as the Lord. There's no Lord Holy Spirit. But it does describe the Lord God and it does describe the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? But the fact that it calls them both Lord does not make them the same Lord. For the very reasons we've been talking about throughout, the fact that Lord is just a title. If you were to use Jesus' title, the Lord Jesus Christ, in a little bit more Hebraic way, you'd say he's the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. It's a Greek version of the title Messiah. His role is Messiah. God is the Lord God. Jesus is the Lord Messiah. And Jesus was made Lord in Christ, by the way. It's not just that Jesus is Lord. He was made that way. Acts 2, when Peter's preaching his message on the day of Pentecost, in the 32nd verse down to about the 36th, it says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. 
It doesn't say God made himself Lord in Christ. It says God made Jesus Lord in Christ. Psalms 89, 26 to 27 is a verse you could use for this. This is a messianic statement when he says, He shall cry unto me, Thou art my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. That's a messianic statement about Jesus. Ephesians 1, 20 to 23 says, Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him in his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. Jesus was given the position of headship. I've said this throughout when we're talking about this topic, but God already has the position of headship. Nobody can give it to him. And he doesn't need to give it to himself. He already owns it. You see how common sense that is? God has never been less than the Almighty God. He's never had to give himself a higher level of power. He's always had all power. He's never had to give himself more authority. He's always had all authority. But Jesus has been given authority and power. Hebrews 1.4 is when, right in that passage we've been quoting, it says, being made so much better than the angels, as he asked by inheritance, obtained a more excellent name than they. What inheritance did God receive that gave him a better name than he had already? Who gave him his inheritance? Who gave God an inheritance? You see, that cannot be speaking about God. Some greater power than Jesus gave Jesus his inheritance, and it's God his Father. The last verse we'll close with is Philippians 2. It says in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, Wherefore, because of his humility, because of what he took upon himself, because of the suffering, because he became a servant, because he took on the things that he took on for the sake of mankind and to be an obedient servant to God. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him. Highly exalted himself or highly exalted someone else? God hath also highly exalted him, given him a name. Do you think God doesn't already have the highest name in the universe? But he gave Jesus a name. There was above every name. God's name was already above every other name. You know what that's talking about? He's giving Jesus a level of authority above every other authority in the universe except him. That you can see in 1 Corinthians 15. He didn't exalt himself. The whole context of the passage is that he wouldn't exalt himself. He would never have considered exalting himself. The only thing Jesus considered doing was becoming more humble. And then following that, it said, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, this is God's intent, every knee should bow, things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm glad they added that little piece on the end, because he's not Lord to his own glory. If this was God making himself Lord, he would be Lord for his own glorification. God is going to be glorified. He's going to be glorified through his son. Jesus' life and Jesus' obedience and Jesus' perfect relationship with his father, his perfect harmony of will and action with his father was what brought glory to God the father. He wasn't trying to be God. He wasn't trying to tell people he was God. He wasn't trying to take the place of his father. He thought not equality with God a thing to be seized or grasped or stolen. He wouldn't have even considered equality with God. That's literally what it says right before that, if you read the Greek right. He wouldn't even considered stealing a position of equality with God. 
On top of the fact that he wouldn't have considered rising to a position that wasn't his own, he took a position that was less than his own. He had a position with God, and he was willing to give that up and take the lowliest position of all to take on the human existence that you and I have to deal with so that he could demonstrate to us it can be done. You can live a holy life. You can be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. And he was the perfect son, the perfect image of the Father, the express image, perfect moral example of the person of God. Praise his holy name.